This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Brandy and Tom, busy with numbers on a Wednesday morning. They include new Dubai inflation data, new Chinese PMI numbers, a report from the guys at Magnet showing a drop in the amount of funding coming into this region for startups. We've got Phil Bahoshi, the man who's put those numbers together, explaining why. Um, also, a new report coming out from the guys at Mercer, having a look at how we're doing when it comes to pensions compared to the rest of the world. Rob Ansari, who's Head of Investments and Retirement for this region at Mercer, has been going through those numbers for us. And we've been looking at what new projects in Saudi Arabia, two big uh, tourism projects announced this week alone, means for the recruitment of white-collar professionals in the construction and project industry. Spoiler, they need more of them. We've been speaking to Aaron Fletcher, he's head of Saudi Arabian recruitment for Hayes. All of that, plus producer Mo has been out playing with a delivery drone at Jitex. Right, uh, we've got some new numbers coming in. Brandy Scott. Yeah, we do indeed. CPI numbers coming out um, from authorities here in the UAE. Let me pull them up, make sure I get them absolutely right. We've got a 3.8% rise year on year in September, which is quite the tick up um, as well from the 2.3% that we were at in August. Dan Richards, a senior economist at Emirates MBD. We've asked him what has pushed that up and what does it mean for the cost of living on the ground? Headline CPI inflation in Dubai accelerated again in September. So it rose from 2.3% year on year in August, meaning prices were 2.3% higher in August from the previous August to 3.8% year on year in September. So essentially this means that the pace of growth in prices here in Dubai is accelerating once again after having fallen back to just 1.0% year on year a few months ago. Now, one of the primary reasons behind this is the transport component of the CPI basket. It was largely this that drove that spike to 7.1% on the headline measure that we saw last year. And as oil prices fell back again in 2023, transport became a deflationary drag on the headline inflation figure, so keeping it relatively low. What we are seeing now is that transport, the transport component of inflation was at just not minus 0.4% year on year September. So that compares with minus 11.2% in August. So that drag on the headline figure is coming in. We anticipate that transport inflation will turn positive in the coming months, given how low oil prices were at the very end of 2022. So this will exert further upwards pressure on the headline CPI number. And when you add that together with ongoing price rises in housing, which is the largest component of a basket, and then others such as uh, household durables and food and drink, households may well start to see their disposable income squeezed over the coming months. Now, I think it is worth highlighting that this has not manifested anywhere near to the same degree in Dubai and the GCC as in the rest of the world. But of course, mileage for every household will vary and some will be more exposed to higher prices than others. Dan Richards, Senior Economist at Emirates MBD. Uh, that's Dan Richards. Uh, we, we've had not one but two economists from Emirates MBD talking. One on Dubai, the other on? China, because we've had Chinese PMI data out this morning, very closely watched what's happening to the Chinese economy at the moment because, of course, major growth engine. Jean Walters is an economist as well at Emirates MBD. Uh, this is her putting those Chinese numbers this morning in context. 
The latest GDP numbers provide further evidence of a stabilization in Chinese economic activity. Chinese GDP rose 4.9% year-on-year in Q3, better than the 4.5% growth that had been expected. While this is lower than the 6.3% year-on-year growth seen in Q2, it's worth noting that the Q2 figure was flattered by COVID lockdown base effects. On a quarter-on-quarter basis, Q3 GDP rose 1.3%, which is up from a downwardly revised 0.5% growth in Q2. Adding to the improving outlook, we had industrial production numbers rising 4.5% year-on-year in September, slightly higher than consensus expectations. And retail sales also improved, gaining 5.5% year-on-year in September, up from 4.6% the month prior. While these numbers show an improvement, Chinese officials themselves struck a cautious tone, suggesting that domestic demand still remained too weak. Critically, the residential property market remains a key long-run area of concern and is likely to continue to act as a drag on economic activity. The outlook for the Chinese economy has particular implications for GCC countries given their role in global oil markets and the importance of China as a trade partner. Jean Walters there from Emirates MBD. Can't accuse us of not being international with our outlook. We've gone... From the UAE to China and now to Saudi Arabia. More people wanting to get there. Yeah, absolutely. More projects means more jobs. This is Aaron Fletcher, head of Saudi recruitment at Hayes. There's two projects this week alone, and that's an indication of the direction of the construction and property market in Saudi Arabia now. I've been in this industry for 11 years, and this is without a doubt the busiest and most competitive recruitment market I've ever been involved in. How busy is busy? If we're looking at numbers specifically, last year was a great year. Last year, there was, with our clients alone, there was a 70% increase in, in hiring. That was a record year for us. Mm-hmm. And this year, we released our salary guide, and the re- response was that there would be a 90% increase in hiring this year. I thought that was a bit overly ambitious at the start of the year, but as we go into the final quarter of the year, we're seeing those numbers. So what does that mean for salaries? We've seen they've gone up 15% prior year. We're expecting those next year salaries to remain consistent from this year. Um, what Saudi have done is they've learned their lesson. Uh, when you know the, the Vision 2030 kicked off, you know the, the strategy behind attracting talent was to, to offer huge salaries. That wasn't sustainable. So what's happened now is you know employers are offering increases, which averages at around 15%, caps at 30%. But in addition to that, trying to be an employer of choice, you know, attracting employees for, for the right reasons. So we don't expect salaries to go up much from, from this year, but they will remain a lot higher than the rest of the GCC market. Ah, uh, but what about bonuses? Bonuses at the moment are one of the main selling points in, in some of these uh, these projects. Um, you know, the by far the bonuses on the Giga projects are the best I've seen. They range. A lot of them are KPI and performance related, but you know these projects can pay anywhere between two to six months of your full salary. Aaron Fletcher is head of Saudi Arabia recruitment for Hayes, talking to us um, on the back of two new projects launched this week alone. One with a neon, uh, another the PIF development Al Wadi to. Uh, discuss whether or not he can find the white-collar talent that he needs to make them happen. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. This is the Business Breakfast. Time now for us to turn our attention to, well, life after work. Mercer CFA Institute's 15th Annual Global Pension Index Ranking uh, is 
out. And it's reported a slight improvement in its combined ratings of more than 45 national retirement systems, even as it comes with a little bit of a mild warning of unprecedented pressures facing those systems worldwide. Uh, Let's dive into that and see how the UA has fared in those uh, rankings. The Head of Investments and Retirement uh, for India, Middle East and Africa at Mercer is Rob Ansari, who's been kind enough to join us live in studio. Morning, Rob. Good morning, Tom. How are you? Very well indeed. Thanks for your time. And uh, thanks very much indeed for the the report as well, which makes for some interesting readings. Before we dive into the UAE retirement income system and all things UAE, what about the landscape overall? Retirement landscape is is a changing, as they say at the moment. Um, if that is the why is that the case at the moment? Why is it changing so fundamentally? So maybe I'll kick off with a statistic from the World Economic Forum of 2022-2023, and that is for the first time in mankind. Uh, there are more people over the age of 65 than what there are below the age of five, which is a quite a startling statistic. And that's not different for the UAE or any major markets around the world as well. So the majority of uh, countries are facing an aging population. The average age in uh, the UAE in 2010 was about 31. By 2020, it was about 32. And now it's about 33. So fertility rates across the world uh, have moderated and fallen in some countries but people are just simply living longer and retiring earlier. So it's imperative there for, or for not just individuals, but governments also to address this and address this now. Absolutely. I mean, the confluence of a population of people that are enjoying better health care, so retiring younger, living longer, and therefore needing to make sure, quite fundamentally, they don't outlive their savings, really. When it comes to the UAE, there will be a lot of people who've been here for quite some time that might, you know, put UAE and retirement not in the same sentence. That's changing. That is evolving a lot at the moment. There's a lot of different initiatives ongoing at present. Um, How does the sort of retirement scheme here uh, compare to others worldwide? So it's it's a great question. Really, I think the the real answer is the the index itself seeks to compare pension systems across the world. As you mentioned, there are 47 now, which represent about 64% of the, the world's population. Um, and it's not a, uh, an index without its controversies. I mean, it's always difficult to compare one index system with another index system or one pension system with another pension system. But realistically for the UAE, it is, uh, it's ranked quite highly, 23rd out of the 47, purely because it has a very a generous benefit system for its uh, for its nationals. It has a very sustainable approach to its pensions. So the key thing about pensions are not being able to um, have a large pot of cash when you retire, but to have an income uh, for a period of time in retirement. And then also the the, the pension systems around the UAE are very well governed. There's uh, clear, transparent, and flexible legislation around how those kinds of pensions are administered by uh, Abu Dhabi or, or, or Gypsum or the Sharjah Fund. So um, overall, the UAE fares well because of those those uh, components. I mean, US, UK from where I come from, other parts of the world, long-standing pension funds, long-standing pension tradition as well. Not so the case here. I mean, to get to 23 in a ranking of 47 so rapidly must show real intent from the authorities. Absolutely. So, so it's the third year the UAE appeared in the index and for the third successive year it's improved its score which is I think is as of note um, and, and yes there's really intense so there are things like golden visas there are things like pensions visas uh, I myself from that cohort of people who moved here 12 years ago for three years and find myself still here with a golden visa and uh, and, and, and residency now and, and property so yes um, that we, we talk about this idea of, of silver dollars. Traditional um, retirement hubs were places like Florida, great, great weather, great golf, 
Spain, France and what have you. But now we see the UAE and parts of the Middle East trying to compete for those those silver dollars and retire here. So the longevity economy is very much a component of how the UAE government are thinking about how they encourage people to both work here, but then when they retire, not take them and their money out of the country, back to their home country. So it is becoming a, a retirement destination as well. But is there also a common link between, I mean, we talk often here on the show about the attraction of talent across all industries. We're seeing a lot more wealth coming to the region at the moment. We're seeing a lot more of the financial industry come into the region at the moment. Is it imperative that for the sort of transparency, the overall transparency and that security, safety and trust element, that the, the, the pension play or the life after work play is something that's in place to attract talent. It's a huge lever that uh, the regional markets are using to pull. So in a like-for-like basis, if you are a young family with a young uh, you know, set of children and want to move to a market in the, in the Middle East, you're likely to think about things like schools, infrastructure and the likes. Um, more importantly now, because of the longevity economy, one of the key levers that you need to think about are, can I save and retire uh, in that market that I'm choosing to be in? So retirement and pensions are not a particularly sort of an important part of young people's lives, but they are uh, important when you think about where do you want to lay down your roots and retire and, uh, on a longer term basis. So they're being used as a talent war. They're being used as a, as a, as a way to bid and win for talent. How much could the replacement to the gratuity scheme, that investment scheme that we've heard about in the last month, push us up these rankings? That's a great question. I was actually considering the question uh, before I came on air. So the way the, the, the pension index is worked is on three subcomponents. One, which is adequacy. The second component, which is um, sustainability. And the third being integrity. So the announcements made in September the 4th, Brandy, are around how uh, the current system, which is for basically in the DIFC, the Jews plan, which you may be familiar with, uh, which then got rolled out in, um, in uh, earlier this year for the 65 government institutions, gets rolled out more broadly to both public and private sector. So based on the fact that there are components of this adequacy um, in, the, in the index, we would expect or would expect to see that the evolution and the rollout of this um, announcement on September the 4th would influence a higher ranking in that adequacy um, component and therefore ultimately increase the ranking of the UAE. Because obviously these are the announcements that came early September and the, it's the evolution of that system because a lot of us would have arrived here with end-of-service benefit yes. as the only sort of um, alternative to us. Is, is end-of-service as we know it gone now? Uh, is that no longer fit for purposes? Is this, is this, is this in the end-of-service 2.0 or 3.0 even? It's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to the question. So... Um, I think this is a direction of travel rather than a destination, if you will. So right now, what was announced is that these will be voluntary for employers and voluntary for employees. So yeah. uh, they're not mandatory as they are, in, for example, in the DFC or the government systems. But I would not be surprised, um, given the, the, the push to move away from the non-oil sector, the pressure on governments to fund pensions in a, in a high inflationary environment, that these become stepping stones towards a final point, which is a more mandatory type of defined contribution plan across the public and private sectors. Rob, I've got one minute left with you. OK, so we're 23 out of 47 this year. What do we do, we being UAE, to go up your rankings next year? So uh, the announcements made in September the 4th were, were key. They were, they were momentous in a, in a way. What needs to happen next is three things. Number one, that legislation needs to get laid down in law through resolution. It needs to be implemented. But the most important thing is the, the, a lot of the, the index is based on the availability of data. So it's okay to have these fantastic systems, but what we need and what the pension index needs is the availability of data to, to support what's happening in practice. So 
implement what's been announced, roll it out, and then gather the data from it to import into the index. Love it, Rob. Well, we'll definitely get you back for the next index. Thank right? you. If not before, uh, great to have you back here in studio. Uh, Love to see you. Big thanks to you and all the team from Mercer as well. Rob Ansari is the Head of Investments and Retirement for the EMEA region uh, for Mercer. Bring us the latest from the 15th annual Mercer CFA Institute Global Pension Index, which is uh, out and published now. This is the Business Breakfast. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's dig into one new report that has come out into funding in startups in the MENA region. Uh, VC funding, it's a report that the guys at Magnet do every quarter. Uh, the headline number quarter on quarter is good. VC funding in the wider MENA region up by around a third compared to the quarter before. But when you start looking year on year, it's a very different story. We're very pleased to be joined by founder and CEO Phil Bahoshi. Phil, good morning. Thanks for speaking to us. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. I actually just want to skip past that positive quarter-on-quarter number and look at the deeper trends that if we look at the first nine months of the year compared to the year before, it's not good, is it, Phil? No, it's not. I mean, at a high level, we've seen a 40% drop in total capital and close to a 54% drop in the number of transactions. Um, If there is a silver lining, this is very much in line with what's happening globally. Um, I think it holds that the the local markets are not immune to what's happening at a global economic perspective, as well as a venture capital perspective. Uh, And what you've seen in the last two quarters is a very slow summer period uh, of what people are talking about as a Uh, uh, cold winter that's ahead. Um, I guess the positive from it is that you are seeing continued focus of investors at early stage. uh, And really, it's the late stage investment landscape that has been the hardest hit. Um, But effectively, with two quarters of no mega deals, which are deals that are greater than $100 million of investments, um, you're really not going to see numbers that we've seen in the last two to three years in terms of total capital uh, being deployed at least for the foreseeable future. Okay, well, there's a lot to dig into there. Let's take it bit by bit. Starting with, as you say, we're not immune to what's happening internationally. We've spoken to a lot of people about the funding desert that we're seeing at the moment. But we're also hearing of a lot of VCs coming to this money, to this region rather, to raise money. We're going to be speaking to, to one on Thursday, actually. Is that money not being redeployed in this region? Is it going elsewhere? Great question. I'm actually going to speak on this subject at uh, Jitex Northstar this afternoon. Um, I think if you read the headlines, uh, it's clear a lot of investors are coming to the region, uh, predominantly to raise funds. Um, the LP market, so the limited partners that usually fund those VCs globally, has dried up. Uh, I, I've been a big proponent to highlight that interest rates the way they are right now makes it very difficult for LPs to justify venture capital investments versus going into other asset classes like fixed deposits or going into treasuries, which uh, are very attractive in the current high interest rate environment. So the VCs that are coming to the region tend to be raising funds. In fact, if you look at the total number of investors that have invested in the MENA region this year, the figure stands at around 250 um, compared to last year, which is about a 50% drop. And only 36% of those come from outside of the region, the lowest that we've seen in the last three years. So I think to a certain extent, what you're seeing is many people coming to raise funds uh, from the region, but not necessarily deploying in the region as much as we have seen in previous years. Why? I think naturally, international investors focus on their home markets. So in difficult, challenging times that we're seeing right now, they look at investments 
in the local geography as well as their local portfolios. Um, and it takes time for that to potentially percolate. So those that have made investments or raised funds from the local markets, uh, I'm not saying that we won't see that deployment in maybe this quarter or potentially in 2024, but that takes time before it comes into the region itself. So uh, a risk-off environment means that you focus on your own portfolios and your own home markets. And the second is if they are raising, it'll probably take some time before it gets into the local markets. Okay, so where money is getting invested, what are we seeing happen to deal size, splitting, as you say, those couple of of big mega deals that have happened out of it? Yeah, so it was interesting when we looked at the uh, Q3 numbers, you saw that investors are very much focusing on early stage investment. And what do we mean by that? Um, Deals that are zero to one million um, and then one to five million. Why is that? I think what we've definitely seen is a return of the accelerator program model. These are programs that support very early stage companies um, in in developing their uh, business model and then supporting them in raising funds. Uh, This was actually something that I red flagged during the COVID pandemic, which kind of dropped off a cliff because a lot of that is engagement in person. uh, And now with Uh, the return uh, to offices and and being able to engage in person, that has definitely seen some growth. The second is, I mentioned the interest rate environment. It is a lot less risky to invest a one to $5 million check at an earlier stage where startups usually take seven to eight years to exit than it is to make bets of $100 million at Series B um, or C. And therefore, investors where valuations have actually stayed relatively constant at seed investment, uh, where actually we've seen an uptick in valuations. Series A, for the sake of example, the next stage has seen a close to 30% drop in valuations. So investors are very much focused on the seed and uh, early stage investment space. But we've also seen a change when it comes to the number of successful exits have been deployed here as well. Yeah, at the beginning of the year, we actually predicted this would be a record year of exits, and that hasn't quite come to fruition, I would say, yet. Exits are very complicated beasts in in structuring. Ultimately, you need a buyer, you need a founder that is ready to sell, you need a a buyer that has cash. um, And in this current economic environment, uh, the cost of capital with interest rates being high makes it that little bit harder to justify, unless it's a very strategic investment. And one area we have seen uh, an emergence of is corporate venture capital and corporates making bets in this space. Um, I do think that next year you will see that activity beginning to pick up again, um, where companies are unable to raise funds, they will be left with uh, limited options except to potentially be acquired and or ultimately fail. Um, And I think that that's something that we will see accelerate going into 2024. Okay, well, we're talking at the regional level here. Let's just drill it down to where we are at the moment. Let's look at the UAE. I'm looking at your graphs. I can see there's been um, a 30% decrease in the uh, deal flow, if you like, in the number of deals for the first nine months. What have we actually seen in terms of the amount of, of money here and the areas that are attracting it? Yeah, so I think the the UAE and Saudi have been the two two markets that have definitely seen the most capital that are being deployed. I think strong government foundations to try and support programs. You have the DFDF funder funds that are seeding funds as well as making investments. And uh, as I mentioned at the early stage, there remains opportunities of growth. I think in terms of sectorial uh, interest, fintech remains the industry of choice uh, for many of the investors. I think even in economically challenged times, uh, you see that the size of the opportunity and the disruption 
across geographies makes for an, a very appealing um, investment opportunity for VCs in that space. Um, and I think that that is very likely to continue, especially when you see the activity of uh, Northstar, uh, Jitex, many events that are taking place to year end, that in-person engagement that kind of stopped over the Q2 and Q3 period uh, will potentially catalyze a pickup of investment activity and deals specifically in, in countries like the UAE. Uh, 30 seconds though, but you were warning of a cold winter. You don't expect to see a pickup this year? I think it's relative. I think that there will be a pickup of investment and deals compared to Q2 and Q3. I just don't think that we're going to see the levels that we've seen in 2021 and 2022 um, for until likely the end of 2024. So that will only translate into 2025. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Founder and CEO of Magnet, Phil Bahoshi, running us through those Q3 numbers when it comes to attracting funding to startups in the region. Jitex Global. The biggest tech event in 2023. Right, let's have a little look at what's happening at Jitex as we speak. A UAE-based drone operator teaming up with a Chinese company to launch the UAE's first ever autonomous drone delivery program. Uh, that's happening at Jitex. Our producer, Mohammed Suleiman, braved the crowds. He's been down there in the last couple of days. Got a first-hand experience of how this particular system works with the folks from uh, Fed's Drone Powered Solutions. He, fo- he caught up, in fact, with Rabia Burashid who is their CEO and their founder. And he began by asking Rabia how the new delivery service actually works. We're going to witness the first ever real life, real delivery that's going to bring a real item that we're going to share with you today. So this is officially literally the first one ever. So in a few minutes, a drone will come. It will land in this box. This box will, will open. We'll all see it. And then it will leave the food here, right? We'll enter a code. So usually it's your phone number. And then your food item will come. So this box usually contains about 26 or 28 orders, so you're going to have multiple people. So this unit can be placed, let's say, next to an office towels or something like that. And then you can place your order from any restaurant. In this case, we just have one for for today's purposes. But this is real. So So any moment now, our our, our food is going to come. Okay, fantastic. It should be here. So in terms of timeline, um, when can I start ordering my lunch with your guys' drones? Okay, so that that is the timeline is not just up to us, but this is going to happen, right? Are we talking months? Maybe not. So probably within a year or so, we start having it in in some parts of Dubai. Uh, but I'm absolutely confident that in Dubai, within two to three years, it's going to be everywhere. Why is Dubai the right place for something like this? Well, for starters, it's the only city on the planet that have actually legalized this. So they have published laws that they published them um, last year or the year before that allows for BV loss beyond visual line of sight flights. BV loss is important for deliveries obviously, because the drone needs to go long distances, right? You cannot, you can't, you know, the laws right now, you have to see the drone. It, every mission have to be within line of sight. So BV laws doesn't really exist, but Dubai allowed for this. So they've built a whole ecosystem to allow for these things. So that was step one. Step two is getting companies like Make to One to kind of certify them for BV loss operation. So this kind of, um, the decision to when to start is just, you know, multiple stakeholders between the governments, between the regulations, between the, you know, the readiness, uh, the buyers, the, the sellers, all of that stuff. But like I said, I'm, um, I'm pretty sure by next year, by 2024, we'd be doing some deliveries, but large scale will take some, some, some more years. Stepping back from this particular announcement, um, what kind of year has 2023 been for you guys? You were telling me off air that it's been very, very busy. Yeah. Who has, who has been keeping you busy over at uh, Fed's um, Drone Power Solutions? I think I think coming back coming back after two years of uh, kind of uh, slowdown of business, 
and everybody starting to understand the impact of drones on their businesses. So um, the business has just has been booming, especially in 2023. The biggest demand is coming from utilities, but obviously the logistics side of things is uh, really picking up. So while we don't see real life ROI, yeah. I, see I think, that, I think our, our, our order is here. I don't yeah. know if you guys can see it on the camera, but we're, we're shooting it from a different angle, but the drone is just about to drop off our delivery. What was it, coconut water? Is that what we ordered? Yeah, we ordered coconut yes, water. We, drop we it need off some here, uh, hydration can... in the in the, <laughs> in the heat. So um, course, I, think I, need, I need to get my code. <laughs> ah, here we, we go. go, so you got a code see, here. See, yeah, when you only place the order, you get your code. Sure, we'll and wait for then, it to be dropped off. I think it's yeah. just dropping it off now, right? Yeah, <laughs> as you can see, we probably can... Uh, Brilliant. It's really audible on the camera right now. So as you can see, these, these gates open. Obviously, they, they need to be closed to yeah. avoid dust, water, you know. So the drone will land right now. It will drop the thing. Correct. Okay, and we have our code. And then we have our code. So I guess we need to give it a second to kind of... Uh, sure, sure. ...unload. <laughs> Someone needs to give us a... I think the, we literally okay. ordered it like two and a half, three minutes ago. It's, uh, I think that's when we ordered just, it, yeah, right? Just, yeah. just when we start talking. So yeah. that's probably two minutes or Less three than, minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, but continue, yeah. continue. Who has been keeping you busy? Uh, okay, so days? like I said, so so the industry are really, really picking up, mostly in the utilities. So you're talking oil and gas, grid, solar, all of this stuff. But the industry is still, you know, there's so much demand. You know, the surveying side, on the feature extraction side. Um, we're even doing agriculture. Okay. But logistics is definitely the most promising uh, application. All right, okay. let's go let's, and get uh, Let's have food. a shot with our coconut water here. Pagan Transit, please wait for about 20 seconds. Please wait for okay. about 20 seconds. In 20 seconds, we're going to have our drone-delivered coconut That's water uh, here in this sweltering heat. Yes. It's, it's been worth it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I would like to see countdown. <laughs> and our friends from China are here as well, right? The company yes, that you yes, signed. yes, yes. The company is all here. Oh, yes. There we go. So I got my box out. When I open my box. As such, and there you go. Here's my coconut water. Ta -da! There and you it's go. cold. Thank you. And there we have it, Rabi Abu Rashid from Falconeye Drone Solutions. Uh, um, yeah, exactly what he said. That's exactly who it was. Thanks, Mo, for doing what we do usually there. Uh, Rabi Abu Rashid, the CEO and founder of Fed's Drone Powered Solutions. Uh, Brandy liked that one. You thought that was cool. Well, I did. I mean, we saw the whole thing in about five minutes. Order placed, drone arrived, coconut water in hand. Does exactly what it says on the tin. Box. Drone. Box. <laughs> uh, right, who's down at Jitex today? If you've uh, been visiting Jitex, do let us know what's caught your eye. Uh, always good to get your thoughts and opinions uh, onto the show. Uh, Jitex running all the way through to the end of the week. Is it always last day is the day that is the sort of everything must go day, isn't it? Isn't that public day? Or is that another of the shows? I get I, it definitely is with golf food. That's the day that people literally turn up with shopping bags and walk away with samples. Yeah. Is it the same with Jitex? I'm not sure if it is. Because Jitex is fundamentally B2B, isn't it? But then I think it's B2C on the final You have Jitex Shopper. Ah, right, yeah. That's the other one where you can get phones and stuff. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.